everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, I'm Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Although I did see something the other day that kind of annoyed me. See, I was uh, out taking Finley for a walk, and I saw one of those Keep Portland Weird signs. I've never been a particular fan of that signage. Usually strikes me as a bit of forced whimsy that I find a little bit off-putting. This sign in particular was interesting because it was in the window of an optometrist shop, and as such, they had laid it out in the form of an eye chart. So the first letter is much larger than the other letters, which is an interesting choice, especially because they went and put three of them in the window. So, yeah. This was a pretty upscale shop in what was a historically black neighborhood, and it would seem to me that as a gentrifying force in a historically black neighborhood, almost literally the least you could do is not put up signs that say KKK in your window. But maybe that's just me. Anyway, we got a comic book to discuss. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. The year 2018 is a nonstop doom abyss, so let's jump back to the Bronze Age as I read a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. Batman and the Outsiders, number five. December, 1983. Simon Says. Written by Mike W. Barr. Drotted by Jim Aparo. Inkted by Jim Aparo. Lettered by Jim Aparo. Co-plotted by Marv Wolfman. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Len Wein. Teen Titan Roll Call. Robin. Cyborg, Beast Boy, Kid Flash, Raven, Starfire, Wonder Girl, and Terra. Outsiders Roll Call, Batman, Geoforce, Halo, Katana, Metamorpho, and Black Lightning. Previously in the Teen Titans. Longtime foes of our titular teenagers, the Fearsome Five, busted out of prison. After regaining their freedom, the criminal quintet stopped off at their old headquarters to take an evil shower and read an evil newspaper over an evil cup of coffee. While perusing their perfidious periodical, a headline caught their collective attention. It seemed that experimental super scientist Dr. Helga Jace was coming to town. Shimmer, who has the nonsense ability to turn anything into anything else, and her brother Mammoth, a helmetless juggernaut ripoff, had previously encountered Jace during their misspent youth in Australia, and reckoned that her ability to make superpowers more superpowerful was the sort of thing that might come in handy for their criminal exploits. The FF's new leader, Simon with a P, a clear-skulled telepath with the world's shittiest ponytail, ordered the gang to go kidnap the visiting supergeneticist. Meanwhile, in their T-shaped skyscraper, the Titans were about to reveal their secret identities to the team's newest recruit, a young earthbending asshole named Terra, who secretly intended to betray the team to her secret partner, Deathstroke the Terminator, a super assassin who used 90% of his brain but only 50% of his eyeballs. But before our heroes had the chance to unmask themselves in front of their teenage traitor, an alarm started going off in one of the bracelets on Terra costume. 
It turned out that Terra 2 had been treated by Dr. Jace, and that during her ministrations, Jace had installed some kind of medical alert bracelet in her dirt-distributing patient's outfit that would go off if the doctor ever found herself in danger. Without bothering to make excuses to her purported pals, the traitorous terraformer hopped on a boulder and flew off to see if her previous benefactor had fallen and could not get up. When she arrived at the site that the distress signal emanated from, the Earth-altering adolescent encountered the outsiders, Halo, Katana, Metamorpho, and Black Lightning. Each side assumed that the other had kidnapped the missing doctor, and a scuffle ensued. When the rest of the Titans showed up, a scuffle briefly escalated to a full Donnybrook before karma heads prevailed and things calmed down. During the post-dust-up refactory period, Geoforce rejoined his teammates and was surprised to see his long-lost sister, Terra. What? You mean the two costumed characters with the same power set and same outfits are related? What a twist! The two groups of heroes called their team leaders, respectively Robin and Batman, to arrange for all 14 crime fighters to sit down and hash things out. When the calls reached them, the dynamic duo were having a tempestuous tete-a-tete. Robin informed his mentor that he had recently reached the realization that Batman is kind of an asshole, and as such, he would like to dissolve their crime-fighting partnership. Concurrent to the Caped Crusader's contentious conversation, a certain fiendish fivesome were coercing a kidnapped Dr. Jason into doing their bidding. Simon with a P instructed the captive doctor to boost his psionic powers and also to turn a bunch of homeless dudes into mindless mud creatures that would obey his commands. Shitty. Jace resisted, so Simon with a P tortured her a bit until she capitulated to his demands. So mud monsters it was. When reports of Mud Monster Mayhem reached the uneasy alliance of outsiders and adolescents that gathered at the Titan Tower, the two teams leapt into action and traced the Muck Monster menace to Simon with a P's secret island laboratory. Everybody fought everybody. Just when the heroes appeared to have the upper hand, the Fearsome Five hopped into an escape bubble and ordered one of the Muck Men minions to push a self-destruct button, exploding the island and sending all 14 superheroes and Dr. Jace plunging to the ocean floor. As the supervillain sailed safely away, Simon with a P confidently remarked to his criminal cohort that the Teen Titans and the Outsiders were dead. Gadzooks! Is this really the end for our titular teenagers and their outsider allies? What further fiendish plans does Simon with a P have for his malevolent mudmen? And did I just use up all of my alliterative descriptions of Terra and Geoforce's powers in the previously in segment? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, no, of course not. The Teen Titans are still alive, and so are the Outsiders. Well, except for Dally and Johnny. Ponyboy's okay, though. Um, not much, really. He does have them fling some poopy at Dr. Light, though, so, hooray. And, no, I'm pretty sure I haven't used firmament flinging yet, so look forward to that. All 14 surprisingly unbuoyant heroes find themselves plummeting to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Batman thinks to himself, Well, this sucks. With me and all my protégés dead, who will protect Gotham? And Robin thinks to himself, Well, this sucks. I did a bad job. Strangely, what neither of them seems to be thinking to themselves is, Okay, time to start swimming upwards. Perhaps uncharacteristically, it is Terra who saves the day. In the last few seconds before she loses consciousness, the firmament flinging, there it is, double agent, uses her powers to reassemble the exploded island under our plunging protagonists. She makes an effort to lift the landmass to the surface, but the effort proves too much and she passes out. Fortunately, Terra isn't the only purported hero in this book who has ground-grubbing gifts. 
Once his body lands on the underwater island his sister stitched back together, Bryon, a.k.a. Geoforce, gets his shit together and lifts the island back to the surface. The Titans and Outsiders aren't so dead after all. Hooray! Beast Boy pretends to be passed out so that he can trick Halo into giving him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Fucking gar. Fortunately, his ruse is unsuccessful. Halo shoots some lasers at him. Good for her. Much to Robin's chagrin, Batman immediately takes command of both groups of damp do-gooders and orders them to reconvene at the Outsiders' headquarters to regroup and squeegee themselves off. Meanwhile, back at the Fearsome Five's secret New Jersey lair, the quintet of criminal crumbums is celebrating what they believe to be the death of their costumed counterparts. What a bunch of jerks. Dr. Light starts ordering the shambling mounds of muck to salute him. The shittily goateed doctor is furious that the C-minus swamp things do not obey his commands. Simon with a P pops up and is like, Nobody is going to do the things that you tell them to do because you are a stupid idiot and we hate you. Light tries to reassert that seeing as he founded the group, he should be the team's leader. The rest of the gang is like, Okay, fair point, but on the other hand, you're a stupid dipshit and we're tired of your shit and we're going to kill you. Then they start attacking him. Simon with a P orders his muddy buddies to fling some poopy at the disreputable doctor. Talk about a shitty severance package. Light freaks out and Kool-Aid mans his way through the ceiling, fleeing his felonious former friends. So Simon with a P turns himself into a giant flying head and soars out of the newly formed skylight in pursuit of his recent teammate with a horde of mindless mud monsters shambling through the air in his wake. Yeah. It looks even weirder than it sounds. Meanwhile, in Manhattan at the Outsider's swanky penthouse base of operations, the two teams of costumed heroes mingle and chat amongst themselves. Tara dotes on her beloved brother Bryon, while the rest of the still-soggy superheroes compare crime-fighting notes. Eventually, when the gang has toweled off enough, Batman starts ordering everyone around again. Jeez, Batman, who died and left you in charge? Oh, right, your parents. Sorry. Fortunately, the masked Marvel's micromanaging is interrupted when Robin hears the report on his police scanner that a giant flying head is fighting a goateed douchebag in Central Park. That's right, the gun-puking stone head from Zardoz has finally had enough of Guy Fieri's shit. Okay, fine. It's Simon with a P and his malformed muck minions fighting Dr. Light. Zardoz and Guy are still getting along just fine. The horde of heroes head out to disrupt the do-batter Donnybrook. Metamorpho turns into a catapult and flings the shambling mounds into the ocean, while Cyborg gives Simon with a P's giant head a giant headache with a sonic blast. The mega-meloned mentalist flees, but not before delivering some kind of a brain laser blast to Dr. Light. Confidently proclaiming that Dr. Light is dead, Simon with a P departs. But of course, Dr. Light wasn't dead. Man, Simon with a P, you gotta start carrying one of those little mirrors around with you so that you can check for breath. This is the 15th time in two issues you've misdiagnosed your opponent's aliveness. A decidedly not-deceased Dr. Light tries to flee from the issue's plethora of protagonists. He zaps Starfire out of the sky and inadvertently hypnotizes Halo, which seems like it's probably going to be a plot point in future Outsider storylines that we aren't going to cover. Raven uses her powers to unhypnotize Halo, and Black Lightning uses his powers to knock out Dr. Light. Hooray! Meanwhile, Gizmo, Shimmer, and Mammoth have broken into the top floor of the Empire State Building. Simon with a P strolls in, having transformed from his nightmarish giant head shape back into his nightmarish usual shape. 
The brain-bubbled bad guy informs the rest of the fearsome four, I guess? that he was perhaps a bit hasty in his assertion that the Teen Titans and the Outsiders were dead. But the good news is that Dr. Light is definitely dead. Oh, simple Simon with a P. The poorly ponytailed premature demise reporter goes on to state his intention to turn the Empire State Building into an enormous psychic antenna, which he will use to mesmerize the entire city of New York. Hey, Simon with a P, if you're looking to mesmerize New Yorkers in 1983, you'll have to get in line behind Harvey Firestein, whose Torch Song trilogy was the toast of the Great White Way. Across town at the Titan's T-shaped skyscraper, our heroes are working with Dr. Jace, who I guess was freed as part of the whole almost drowning when that island blew up thing, but who I got to admit I had totally forgotten about. Jace hooks up some kind of anti-hypnotic radiation gizmo that she zaps the heroes with so that they'll be immune to Simon with a P's bullshit. Handy. In an adjacent room, Batman and Robin are interrogating Dr. Light. Keeping a criminal who can control light itself captive is a tricky endeavor, but fortunately, the high-tech Titan Tower is equipped with the very latest in supervillain restraint technology. A wooden chair and some rope. At first, the trussed-up troublemaker tries to be tight-lipped, but then... Batman threatens him for a second, and the prismatically powered poltroon folds faster than Kid Flash at his summer job at the Gap, and spills the beans about his former friend's fiendish plans. The cavalcade of costumed crime fighters congregate at the Empire State Building to get their thwart on. Beast Boy turns into a giant green gorilla and attempts to scale the building from the outside. Works for him about as well as it did for the original King Kong. As he nears the top of the building, he is electrocuted and forced to retreat. Unlike the OG King Kong, at least the Emerald Adolescent isn't dead. Although if Simon with a P was there, he'd probably confidently proclaim that he was. The heroes then try a different approach. They take the stairs. A horde of psionically controlled office workers attack them. For office workers, the mesmerized middle managers have a surprising amount of axes with them. Kid Flash runs around and sucks all the air out of the floors above them, temporarily rendering the hypnotees unconscious. Huh. I always thought that sucking all the air out of the room was something that Wally only did metaphorically. hey -oh. Batman starts ordering Katana, Starfire, and Halo to defend against the civilians, while the rest of the heroes attack the fearsome four. Robin interrupts and is like, No, that is a stupid plan. I mean, I agree with the part that the lady with the sharp sword should be used as part of the defense squad, but the rest is dumb. Everybody listen to me, and nobody listen to Batman. At Robin's insistence, Wonder Girl, Raven and Katana hold the office workers at bay, while the rest of the group heads upstairs to confront the corrupt quartet of criminals. Tara and her brother Brian quickly KO Mammoth. Batman and Robin strip Gizmo of his gizmos. Shimmer tries to turn Metamorpho into something else, but because Metamorpho can already turn himself into other stuff, for some reason her powers backfire and turn the transmuting terrorist into glass. Sure, why not? Everybody then turns their attention to beating up Simon with a P. Their efforts have little effect until Robin tells Halo to blast him with a stasis beam, which is, I guess, a thing that she can do. Simon with a P promptly falls asleep, and 8 million New Yorkers suddenly stop being mesmerized. Unless they were attending the aforementioned Torch Song trilogy, in which case they go back to being mesmerized by the transformative power of theater. Hooray! Later that evening at the Titan Tower, the gang returns to find that Dr. Light somehow managed to free himself from his seemingly inescapable prison of being tied to a wooden chair. The craven criminal left behind his costume and a two-word note, which read simply, 
I quit. Hooray! Although that does mean there's a naked no-goodnik with a terrible goatee loose on the streets of the city. Unsettling. As Bryon bids his sister Terra a tearful goodbye, the younger Earthbender thinks to herself that she hopes her brother isn't impacted by her betrayal of the Titans. Aw, that's surprisingly considerate of her. As the outsiders are about to depart, Batman tells Robin, Hey, that was some great aotocratic assholery you pulled back at the Empire State Building. The way you acted like a prick and ordered everyone around reminded me of a younger me. I'm proud of you. Robin responds, Thanks, Batman, but I never could have been this big an asshole if you hadn't taught me how. Thanks, buddy. Aw. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. And I don't know the rest of the words to that song. I think the dad is sad and so's the kid. And that's how the general theme of the song develops. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am well. How are you? I am doing very well. Uh, now I understand you celebrated a birthday this last week. Indeed. Was this the one you've been waiting for? The birthday? Yeah, the one where Hagrid comes and tells you you're a wizard. Oh, uh, not yet, not yet. Maybe it's because you were in Canada. Maybe he couldn't find you there. Oh, that could be. I was I was in Canada. Do you have a cutoff date at which you're going to stop anticipating that? Well, I don't really see what purpose that would serve. Fair enough. I'm I'm just I'm really rooting for you to one day be the Billy Madison of Hogwarts. Well, <laughs> just you know, we we just you keep you keep trying. That's that's right. Every every year you get a little bit closer. I think it's probably because like when you were like traditional Harry Potter age, mm-hmm. you were living in the community, in the commune, which not off the grid, but grid adjacent, I would say. Very hard to find Very, people there. Yeah, yeah, especially if you're from England. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm i just saying, hold, hold out, hope, buddy. I'm, S- I'm holding the maybe, hope. Maybe, maybe, like, maybe next July 11th. Maybe so. 7-11 is a lucky date. It told, Yeah, I know. It's when miracles happen. You're a wizard, Corey! Yeah, it's... Well, thank you. That wasn't Hagrid just showing up a few days late. That was me doing the impression just now. In case you guys didn't... It was a very good impression. I'm very good with accents. And you do have a beard. But I know you. (laughs) And you're not Hagrid. I'm not a giant. Anyway, how'd you like this issue? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I thought this was a good time. There were so many people and there was so much going on at the same time. Pretty straightforward. It was nice to see Dr. Light. Get some comeuppance? A little bit, yeah. I thought this issue was fine. It didn't really do it for me in a lot of ways, but it made me appreciate the regular series a little bit more, and honestly made me appreciate Wolfman's writing a little bit more. And Perez, too, right? Like you were saying, where like when he was back, you were like, ah, this yeah. is what I missed, and then again, now you're just like, hey. Yeah. It's, it's fine, but... Although I've had a pretty consistent appreciation for Perez, and my... My liking of Wolfman's writing has definitely waned and my, my respect for him has kind of fluctuated as we've read this because there have been some things that he does that I find really frustrating. But when you see another writer take over, it, for me at least, made me see the things that Wolfman does differently than a lot of the comic industry was at this point. Hmm. I don't think Mike W. Barr is a bad writer. He's written at least one series that I loved. He wrote Camelot 3000, which I thought was super dope. 
But this issue, the dialogue and the plotting, there was some funny stuff in it. It just seemed corny in a way that the Wolfman stuff doesn't really as much. Mm, that's an interesting statement because the other stuff is corny, but what is like for you corny versus Honestly, not corny? it it's the the writing style more than the plot points in it. Mm. I don't know if you noticed this, but there was an overload of exclamation points in this in a way that Wolfman doesn't really do and is more traditional for comic book writing. I know we talked about it when it came up in the original Titans run, but up through almost 1970, every sentence ended with a exclamation point or a question mark because in the very early printing process of comic books, periods were too small and the the printing was done cheaply enough that you wouldn't be able to see a period necessarily. So out of necessity, they had every sentence end in an exclamation point. And that became kind of a self-perpetuating thing as the printing process got more refined to where it became a stylistic choice. This goes back to that. I, I looked through it. Almost every sentence ended with an exclamation point or a question mark. If you saw a period, it was in ellipses, and then that would end when the sentence did eventually end, it would be in an exclamation point. And it came off as corny to me. And one thing led to another, and now everybody's speaking like a thousand crystal gongs. <laughs> exactly. So that's what's corny, is, is the overuse of... Overuse of exclamation points, but I, I mean, I think that also just ended up being the way that the dialogue was written. Like, in terms of... It seemed a more early Bronze Age, Silver Age dialogue pattern. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't like it as much, and I don't think he got the characterization, not just of the new Teen Titans, uh, I don't think he got the characterization of the Outsiders in a way that seemed as interesting as the previous issue did. Yeah, it's odd that the Batman and the Outsiders book feels like it was written for a younger audience than the book with the younger protagonist, but it really did feel that way to me. Yeah, I suppose I suppose that's fair. Tough, but fair. Thank you. That is my watch phrase. What's a watch phrase? I don't know. It's like a watchword, but then I realized I didn't know what watchword meant, and also it was a whole phrase. So Isn't a watchword like blow up the plane or something? No, that's a no. few words. Yeah, that's a lot of words. Is a watchword like Oh, no, I was thinking of a safe word. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if you had a whole phrase for a safe word, that would be probably problematic in a lot of ways, I would bet. Because it's harder to remember. Well, harder to remember and also, like, harder to say if you're under a lot of duress. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Safety first. We talked about the fact that it isn't Perez because this is an issue of Batman and the Outsiders, not the new Teen Titans. And the art is by Jim Aparo. And I like his art. I think it's good. Aparo is also one of the only guys that was working at this time who not only did all of his own pencils and inks, hmm. but he also did his own lettering. Oh, really? Yeah. Which was definitely a rarity at this time. And he did that throughout most of his career. Wow. That just sounds like a giant pain. I mean, yeah. did he... I think you get paid a little more. I was going to say, you must have to ask for extra pay, because that's like doing three people's I think that that is part of it, but it is also, I mean, there are a lot more sound effects in this issue, and so I think, like, it makes it more, probably the way he maps out the panels, he was able to do that in a different way, I would imagine. What size word bubbles you need for blocking those out and things. I, I can see in some ways that being a reasonable thing to do, but it does seem like a ton more work. That said, Perez also seems to have 
a real good sense of the graphic design aspect of how words are going to fit into the panels when yeah. there's sound effects. Yeah, and I'm sure he does leave his own space for them and, and probably does some of his own sound effects. We've talked about that, that whether or not the letterer or the artist does the sound effects is a personal choice that fluctuates from creative team to creative team. There is an awesome one in there when Katana whacks the office dude in the back of the head with her <laughs> sword. The whack noise is on his back. It's a very visceral, like... Yeah, it's a cool graphic whack. design choice that's mm -hmm. made with it. But yeah, I like Jim Aparo. That being said, he is no George Perez. And whenever these characters are not drawn by George Perez, it feels wrong. And especially when you don't have Romeo Tangal doing the inking to kind of smooth over the transition. Mm -hmm. And especially the attention to detail part of it. Although there was one little bit in there that pleased me. And that was um, Cyborg's little laser finger that he uses to heat up the <laughs> coffee urn. That was pretty cool. That was a nice touch. Yeah, there was definitely some fun stuff in this issue. But the overall tone of it... The last issue I felt was a lot of fun. This issue I felt was a lot of fun, but there was more of an air of menace and there were some real stakes that I felt were injected into the last issue that really didn't feel that way here. Like the shambling mounds never felt like a real menace in this issue at all. They seem more goofy. And <laughs> just flinging poop. Yeah, they're just poop flingers, um, which I mean, unpleasant. I, I certainly wouldn't want to go up against a horde of them, but nope. also not specifically life-threatening feeling for superheroes. I know. And, like, where is Aqualad when you need him? He could get some water and just fling water on them, and then they'd be like, ah, I'm uh, Oh, totally. Do a Wicked Witch thing? Yeah. I bet that'd be fun for him. Right? Yeah. The stakes are high in the first, like, two pages where you're like, oh my gosh, everybody's drowning, and then they're fine. Even that, though, because the way that that information is presented, it's a, a pet peeve of mine, and I think it actually works pretty well in this issue, but they break the fourth wall a couple of times. Mm. And You don't that, like that? I generally don't. I think it can be done well, but I think it's something that is overused a lot of times, and the effect that it has almost universally is to lower the stakes and make you feel that these people aren't in danger because it, it literally takes you out of the story and reminds you that this is a story that is being told. The, the way that's done is on the first page, are you in luck? For only 75 cents, you have a ringside seat for the death of Batman and the Outsiders and the new Teen Titans. Now, is that a bargain or what? Like, that's fun, but it doesn't make you think that that's actually what's going to happen at all or that these characters are any, in any real danger. And then a couple pages later, when they get rescued, the captioning says, and apparently our splash page copy couldn't have been more wrong, and we couldn't be happier. Now, like I said, that's fun, and I think it works better than that sort of thing normally does, but it definitely has the effect of lowering the stakes and making you think, oh, that's right, I'm reading a comic book. These characters are not in any real danger. Do you, I mean, maybe other than, like, Crisis or something, but do you ever feel like that's going to happen with everybody that's important in these books? I think you can get swept up in the story a bit enough that you do feel that way. And, I mean... I mean, it's not like Game of Thrones or something, right? Yeah, that, that, that's true. But, I mean, I think the, the magic trick that a good comic that's well-written takes you on is you do care about the characters and you do feel the danger that they're in, you know? Mm -hmm. Even if logically you know that that's not the case. Even if you can think about it and be like, okay, well, they're not going to kill the title characters, obviously. Just but I think it's rude for them to, to remind you of it, you know? Yeah, okay, that makes sense. For me, it was because, the like, the first drowning guy is Batman. And yeah. The, and the girl, the, you know, his, he's gurgling these thoughts of, like, oh, who will save the city now? 
I'm just like, you're not going to let him go out like that. Yeah, and Batman was never heard from again in the, the fifth issue of not his primary book. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was worried about Tara and her brother because yeah. I was like, these guys, like, kind of, it would be pretty con- convenient to just, you know. Man, that would be such a fucking tease if that was the resolution. The Titans never found out that she was a traitor because she just died. Dude, better not to know. Yeah. Oh, man. That would actually be a pretty cool story. Mm hmm. But nah, man, she does a pretty good job. She reassembles a little island with her powers before mm-hmm. she passes out. Little tag team to Bryon. Uh-huh, and then Bryon <laughs> uses his Geoforce powers to boil some lava and change gravity. I had assumed that they had similar powers, but it seems like their powers are pretty different. Like, they're both kind of Earth-related, but I don't think Terra can affect things gravity. I, maybe she does. Maybe that's how she flies around Did- on rocks. I'm not a scientist. You're not? I'm more of a social scientist, but I don't oh, understand right. you're, you're, how... You're more into the soft sciences, like sociology and hugging. More so hugging these days. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think they like to say soft sciences anymore. Anyway, <laughs> for the plume of lava to be able to push the island up through the water, and for the water to stay where the water is, you need gravity to make all that work as I understand it. Okay. So... Well, he doesn't turn off gravity. Doesn't he just, like, make a, like a I think cone he of makes, no gravity? Or just, like... I think he makes the island lighter, maybe? I think we need to... Let's take a look. Let's get down to the science on yeah. this, Brian. I think this. there might be something implausible that happens in this superhero <laughs> comic. He says something about gravity. He does say null gravity to lighten this mass. Okay, so he makes the... And a lava blast to lift it off. Yeah, he's using a lava blast as a propulsive device. And then I think the null gravity is supposed to be making the island less heavy. Okay, so that would work. It's like uh, like when you're on the moon and you take a, a big leap. Yeah, exactly like that. It's universally relatable experience of being on the moon and taking a big leap. Yep. Totally right. Thank you. Yes. Science. Next. But one thing I really did like about the art is I love the way Jim Aparo draws Batman. Batman looks fucking badass in this issue, and he always does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, we get the Fearsome Five in this issue. Yay! They're acting kind of weird for the Fearsome Five, I feel like. I mean... In that Shimmer's Deus Ex powers are <laughs> completely under if not at all employed yeah that's part of it but also how quickly and how viciously they turn on dr light that confused me i actually thought i missed a page because it goes from like i'm in charge to like no you're not yeah to, to like let's kick his fucking ass yeah yeah it's vicious man we've talked about it dr light's a real piece of shit especially i feel like our our understanding of the character is colored by later works but even at this point, like, he's a real prick. But I always thought he worked better as, like, a Starscream-type character. <laughs> <Who's>, you know? <laughs> you think he has that? He's a total Starscream. He's star got screen. that same Cobra Commander like, voice. Yeah, even when he's the Cobra Commander, he's like, the like, yeah, we let this guy think he's in charge because it's easier that way. But in this, he's doing his typical Dr. Light thing where he's like, I'll order these shambling mounds around. Everybody, do what I say. I'm in charge here. And the mud beings are not listening to him. He's like, what's going on? And then, yeah, drop of a hat. He hasn't done anything differently than he normally does things. 
And apparently it has reached a breaking point because the rest of the Fearsome Five are immediately, you're not the leader. We want Simon to be the leader. Okay, fair enough. They've made that pretty clear. And Simon was the leader in the last issue Mm -hmm. and is probably about, I would say about 60% of the time that he's in a comic book with them. But they make the next step to not only do we not want you in charge, but we don't want you on the team. Okay, fair enough. And then, so we're going to murder you right now. That made no sense to me. No. I mean, he does have a real back fife and geschleicht, which is German for face in need of a punch. Oh! I don't think I said it quite right. Oh, I'm sure you did, Corey. But, still, it seemed very rushed that they wanted to murder him. Yeah, it, it is an immediate transition, and it seems pretty out of character for them as a group, especially like the more like, like fun-loving, freewheeling gizmo. That doesn't seem Everybody like seems in on it, like, yeah. right away. And, and it's, it's an immediate change. Maybe Simon is using his enhanced powers to fuck with them. I don't think so, because Mammoth is the one, like, as soon as they're like, you know, Simon's in charge, like, you can yeah. get lost, in, and then Mammoth's like, I want to kill him now. Yeah. And Simon's like, no, no, he's not worth it. It's cool. But then I'm going to kill Chill him. Chill out, big guy. Yeah, but, I mean, he does say, like, then Simon does try to kill him. It's, it's, it's so confusing. What's also confusing is the way that Simon demonstrates his, I gotta believe, enhanced power, because he just turns into a giant flying head like he's stepping out of Zardoz and makes some kind of a, like... Trail of light? Yeah, I mean, Dr. Light had done that earlier, where he made the hard photon light and is skating around on it like Iceman and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. But then Simon does that where he makes... I thought it was just tracers of him going fast Mm. but then you see that the shambling mounds are walking on it after him it is so confusing it is really cool looking it is really goofy it is completely incomprehensible what is happening or how it is happening yes I giggled a yeah, little bit. Me too. I was like, what the giant fuck? Giant head flying around the <laughs> stupid ponytail. With, with, yeah, with a trail of C minus swamp things. I know. I like that we're calling them shambling mounds now. That yeah. reminds me of D&D goofiness. Uh, maybe next issue, Brother Blood will get his hand on some gelatinous cubes. Ah. Wouldn't that be a time? Yeah, he'll need some... Oh, never mind. What? Oh, there was a thing. Remember when... On some podcast that maybe we did, there was a thing about cube lube. Yeah, that was a podcast that we did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He'll need some cube lube. Yeah. So the guy I played D&D with had heard that and then worked it into a a thing where there was a gelatinous cube. (laughs) And he could only be defeated with cube lube? Yeah. That's cute. Yeah. That's nice. Good good job. DM guy. James? Mm -hmm. If you're listening, James, very clever. Much appreciated. Indeed. The rest of the Fearsome Five don't really get a ton of screen time, honestly. Dr. Light is the main dude that, I mean, once he tries to escape, he fights Simon in the park, and then the Titans and the Outsiders show up. Because who doesn't like a good superhero fight in Central Park? Indeed. It is the place to go. It's not the first time this has happened. No, I bet it's kind of a tourist trap in that way, if you're in, like, the DCU. It's like... So, what did you do? Well, we went to Central Park and saw a superhero fight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just Booster Gold, so, yeah, and it wasn't great. But it was still, you know, it felt touristy, but it was it was fun. Do you think people give, sh- other than the Batman, shit to, like, non-powered 
rich superheroes. I mean, Booster Gold's from the future, and he has future tech. He's not he's a rich. rich person. Yeah, but but I mean, he's rich because he got sponsorship deals. He's rich because he's a superhero from the future. Oh, does he have actual powers? Well, he's from the future, and so he has oh, all of the. He's power. got future technology. That's kind of a power. I mean, he's non-powered in the way that Iron you Man is non-powered. Magic. Because it's just it appears to magic to us. Understand. Yes, exactly, Arthur C. Clarke. Thank that's you. exactly what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> He's that, got like force a, fields. That's and one of the nicest things, things anybody's ever called me. <laughs> I think I don't know much about the man, but his writing is. He is, seems like a good, good guy. Okay. I think he's solid. Okay, <laughs> not veering into. Yeah, yeah. He, he he has not yet been revealed, at least to me, to be horrifyingly evil in the way that so many other creators okay. from that era have been. Well, good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably generally non-powered heroes probably get a bit of flack from their Doesn't stop the tourists from coming. No. Mm-hmm. You know, they see, they see the brightly colored costume. Hero fight. Everybody gather around. Taking fucking selfies in front of it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people die that way. Sure. I mean, we do learn that bystanders do get caught up in superhero battles, do occasionally get killed. Oh issue. man, that's a heavy Black, load. Black Lightning has mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. little chat with a very defensive Wally West. I guess it's understandable that that like if somebody dropped something on that, like you would just blurt out what came into your head. But it seems to me like if somebody says something really heavy, like if I met somebody and they were like, "Yeah, I on a, I killed a cyclist driving my car." Yeah, my first thing to say wouldn't be, "How can you live with yourself?" <laughs> yeah, which is what Wally says to him. Yeah, so. Black Lightning has met Wally West before. I think they met in the 70s. But even if this had been his first encounter with Wally, I think he kind of knows to take Wally with a grain of sand because their first interaction with this is Black Lightning's saying, yeah, I quit the hero game for a while. And Wally responds, mind if I ask why? I've got my reasons! (laughs) I know. He's got a little weird scowl on his face, holding his water real tight. Yeah, and that was one of the first times where I really noticed the, like, exclamation point thing. Mm-hmm. Because that is a weird thing to say, and a weird way to say that. It'd be kind of funny to just start tacking that on to the end of questions you ask people. <laughs> I've got my reasons! Hey, man, how's it going? I've got my reasons! <laughs> Do you like mustard? I've got my reasons! But there are a bunch of fun different interactions that happen between the Outsiders and the Teen Titans in this issue. We got a little conversation that you mentioned briefly between uh, Cyborg and Katana, where she offers him some coffee. And he's like, oh, you're being really nice and you're being strangely domestic. And she... It is part of the Bushido Code. Apparently. That Mikasa Asukasa. (laughs) Is that what she says? Uh, Pretty much. She says... I am a samurai, and you are my comrades. My sword is yours in battle. My home is yours in peace. La Quinta is Spanish for samurai. <laughs> I am, Yeah, I am pretty sure. Like, I've seen a lot of samurai movies, yeah. and I don't think that's how you it You don't works. think they, they just make each other coffee a lot? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, like, when the battle's done? Yeah. Not like, okay, it's everybody. Like, well, they're not battling right then. My house. They're comrades. I'll make barbecue. Like, Yeah. I don't know. And maybe... It, it's not super hospitable of her, too, to just offer cold coffee. I know Cyborg is able to fucking finger blast the coffee and heat it up, but she has a stove there. She could have heated it up herself first. I bet they have a microwave, even. I know it's only 1983, but they're in, like, Bruce Wayne's penthouse whatever. It's like a really big, unsafe microwave. Yeah. It's a walk-in microwave. 
Do you ever do the thing where I had a microwave that was a little bit broken and people were nervous to use it and I was like, ah, it's fine. But uh, I Googled how to tell if your microwave is safe or not and you take a fluorescent light bulb and you run the microwave and you you move the bulb around the outside of it to see where it's leaking because the bulb will flicker. Whoa, no. Yeah. Did you feel like a ghostbuster? No, I felt, you know, kind of like an idiot because I read this thing on the internet and nothing happened. Did it work? Either the microwave was fine or the thing I read was bullshit. That sounds funny. We'll never know. I bet I would have felt like a ghostbuster. Yeah, I mean, I felt like I was solving a problem. I was able to tell people in the house, everything's (laughs) fine. I I put the light on it. I put a light bulb near it. Yep. Good news, everybody. We can keep microwaving our coffee. (laughs) Everything's cool. While you were doing it, did you hum to yourself, do-do-do-do-do-do? I kind of wish I had, but I didn't. I didn't. Next time. Yeah. Well, we can check my microwave later. I like. I'm pretty sure it's fine. And I also don't have a fluorescent light bulb. We can just hold a stick near it. See if it starts glowing. It's not the same. Fine. So some of the other interactions we get, we get Tara interacting with Brian. I think for the first time, she explicitly states to herself that she feels kind of shitty about. The whole betrayal thing. Not in so much as it will affect the Titans, but now that the Titans are friends with the Outsiders, she's worried that there'll be some splashback on her beloved brother. Brian. Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Did, do we, I'm forgetting, do we get the backstory on why she is beholden to Deathstroke? Not yet. Okay. Because if it's just money or some shit, I'm yeah. going to be so mad at her. I mean, you get to be mad at her either way. Well, I don't know. It could be like a one of those things where she's being blackmailed. Yeah, like, for something real important to her, yeah. where you can kind of understand like she doesn't know the Titans, so she's willing to right. oppose them for to save her baby, which she wouldn't have because she's a kid. But hopefully, to save. I mean, we've seen to her. pregnant teenage runaways in this series before. Oh, that is true. Well, I guess we'll get to that when we get to it. But yeah, we see that she feels shitty about the whole Brian thing. It also seemed I really thought there would be more of a reveal as to what their situation was and how she got her powers or something. It felt like they were leading up to that in the last issue, and there really isn't any in this one. And why do they have matching costume if she made her own costume? Well, apparently she didn't make her own costume. Maybe? Or maybe, like, her brother had that costume, and she's like, well, this is what earthbending costumes look like. Mm. I don't understand why that was such a stumbling point for Beast Boy. Maybe it's because Beast Boy is a fucking idiot. Ah, Gar. Yeah, that's one of the less fun interactions we have is between Beast Boy and Halo. I am shaking my head. Yeah. Again. Yeah. When they come up for air, Beast Boy appears to be unconscious longer, and Halo's like, I'm worried. Beast Boy seems like he's hurt. And he's like, hey, Goldie, give me some mouth to mouth. Yeah, and she's like, gross. Yeah, and then starts firing lasers at him. Which, good call. And he changes into a mutated-looking rabbit and runs away. It is a creepy rabbit. Do you remember? It is like a flounder of a rabbit. Because, like, the perspective is done in a weird way where it looks like he just has eyes on one side of his head. When you were a kid, did you watch the movie that I think was the Twilight Zone movie? Yeah. With the the kid that could make anything happen? Yeah. There's a creepy fucking rabbit in it? Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of that, and I was like, ugh. Yeah, that was a retelling of an original Twilight Zone episode that it's a good life. Oh, the one where the kid kills all those people? It sends them to the cornfield. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. They all have to think good thoughts. Yeah, that uh, is creepy. Yeah. It's the... This actually came up recently, but the kid who did that was the same kid from Lost in Space, Bill Moomy, who 
also, uh, how, how's your mind, Corey? Is it blown? I don't know. It's about to be. That kid wrote Fish Heads. The song? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's weird. Yeah, Bill Moomy. Interesting <laughs> guy. What were we talking about? <laughs> Uh, that, oh, no Be- Beast Boy turned it into a creepy-ass-looking rabbit that did look like one of the, like, hybrid cartoon claymation things that happened in the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's a creepy-looking rabbit, mm-hmm. is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and also, for his behavior. Uh, I'll, I'll give that a second. The thing about this, too, that is troubling to me on another level is... It makes me think of myself as like a 12 year old boy Mm -hmm. reading these comics. Yeah. And I think at that point, his behavior in some way, I'm embarrassed to say, would have resonated a little bit. Yeah. Like this idea of like pretending to be unconscious for a cute girl to kiss you. Yeah. Well, seemed super, would seem clever. Well, and would seem totally acceptable, especially in the context of other media that you're consuming in the early 80s. When everybody was awful. Yes. Including us. Yep. Sometimes it's nice to be able to look back <laughs> and be like, I'm glad I think differently. Yeah. Than I thought at that time. I wonder if that's, that must just be a progressive thing. It's a yeah, little I weird think that to is think a about. constant thing. Uh, I don't want to think about that actually, what it's going to be like when I'm in my 60s. Well, like, hopefully, uh. hopefully we do though. I, I mean, like, otherwise we're like the people who don't, you know? Otherwise Other- we're like Beast Boy forever. Otherwise you're Beast Boy forever. Or you're the... Clint Eastwood saying, like, when I was younger, it was fine that we acted that way. And so, therefore, it is still fine for everybody to act that way forever. Mm. Yeah. Good you point. know? Yeah, fuck Like, that. best case scenario, 20 years from now, we're looking back on what pieces of shit we were today. Here's to No Beast Boys. A more fun interaction that Halo gets to have is her uh, playing off of Raven a little bit. And we see that they form kind of a kind of an unlikely animal friendship type of bond. Which, which is which, fun. which which character would be which animal in this unlikely animal friendship? Okay, I'm gonna say that Raven is the Raven. <laughs> Easy bit on the nose, but okay. And Halo is baby zebra. Mm, cute. Yeah, that's a, that's fun. Watch them pal around. Mm-hmm. She's it's a got good stripes. time. Yeah. So that works. Yeah, it's an unlikely animal friendship, but it's cute and it's fun to watch it develop. Uh, And we see that Raven is, in fact, very protective of Halo, especially later on when Halo is briefly mind-controlled, inadvertently, it seems, by Dr. Light. Yeah, that, they they leave that as they will explain that later, and they never explain it later. No, maybe it'll come up again in later issues of Batman and the Outsiders, although, who knows, because apparently Dr. Light retires at the end of this issue. So, good for him, good for the world. But it does kind of make sense that he would exert some control over Halo because she appears to be a being of light, or at least who has light powers or something. Ah. I read a very brief, like I did a little bit of research on the internet, and we won't get into what her whole backstory is because it's irrelevant to what is happening in this issue. But the first thing that pops up about Halo is a quote that Katana says about her, I'm sure much later on in the series, where... She says, she seems like such a normal girl. Then I remember she's actually a strange being millions of years old. (laughs) What? Yeah. So for other interactions we get in this, we get the Batman and Robin power dynamic and it's shifting. And that I thought was a fun little B plot to the story. Mm -hmm. And they, Batman learns to respect 
Robin as an independent leader, and Robin asserts himself and steps out from behind Batman's significant shadow. Mm-hmm. That was fun. I also like that Robin was mad that Batman never says thank you. <laughs> yeah. That would really irritate me. It would irritate me too, and that's how, that's what Robin does too. He learned it from watching Batman. Mm-hmm. Very similar leadership techniques. Oh, yes. Yeah. We also see that I think they're both really bad strategists because the incident that propels Robin to take over from Batman when Batman's running the show is that Batman says, half of us will handle the people and half will tackle Simon. Katana, you, Starfire, and Halo will lead the defense against the civilians. Take, and Robin says, no! Starfire is best on offense, not defense, and we'll need Halo to put Simon away. Robin, you're out of line. The hell I am. I know the Titans better than you, and I know more about it running a team than you. I won't let you endanger us all just because you like to be in charge. That's fun. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No, but what I mean when I say they're both bad at strategy is that Batman is like, okay, we'll let Robin run things. So he's like, okay, well, we need Halo for that. Starfire is better on offense than on defense. But you know who is a great defensive person? Katana. Because what better defensive weapon is there than a fucking sword? Especially a skinny one like that. That's hard to whack somebody on the flat side. Against office workers. We'll put the person who has a sharp pointy thing on defense. That just seems so dumb to me. Maybe he thought she knew uh, martial art. That didn't require the sword. Oh, she probably does. But we do see her just whacking people unconscious with the flat Yeah, she doesn't. She just knows how to hit people with swords, but... Yeah, that seemed really silly to me. Although it does lead to a fun scene of her just whacking people with swords. It is weird that so many office workers in the Empire State Building have axes handy. I was trying to figure that out. I was thinking that there's probably a regulation that there's like a fire... Yeah, fire safety act. But like you would think that would be like maybe one per floor. Whereas like there's a ton of people with axes. There is one person who has a table leg, but there are five or six people who just have hatchets that they're walking around their office with. Maybe it was like the floor on the building was a company like that makes axes and there was a bunch of prototypes. Oh, that's probably it. Or they just had like a big office party. And everybody got a free axe they from had a, a promotional team, a axe team building company. event yeah, where you go yeah. to those axe throwing things. Exactly. I bet that'd be fun. I've never tried that. Throwing an axe? Well, like at a... At a target. Yeah. I mean, isn't it? Like a throwing axe. Yeah. I've thrown regular axes. Oh, sure. <laughs> Who hasn't? We were all young ones. Yeah. Yeah, we should try that sometime. Let's think, throw axes at shit. I think my shit. dad's got some axes there, in hey? his garage. <laughs> Let's go back and throw axes at things. Uh, it's funny talking about not being 12 anymore. <laughs> I remember you and Moses doing that thing where you would fire bows and arrows and one of you would hold a target oh, and no, run no, around no, with no, it. Oh, no, 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 That wasn't Moses. That, that wasn't Moses, and that was me, and I never held the target. You never held the target? No. You got somebody else to hold the target and Wait, run around? Yeah. Oh, Corey. It didn't occur to me that, like, what the consequences could have been. It occurred to you enough that you weren't the one holding the target. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I think you're right. Oh, man. That's not good. Yeah. Sorry, whatever your name was, kid. I don't even remember who it was. To oh, me, it was boy. a big target. It was... <laughs> and it was filled and you with... you were a master archer. It was filled with hay. If I had hit him or if I'd hit the target, it probably would have been not that bad. No, you're right. Clearly, that was a good and safe thing to do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying <laughs> I probably wouldn't have, like, seriously, seriously injured the kid. Okay. It was, uh, it was like a ravine. Like, he was down pretty far. 
And I was just standing How is the that precipice. a mitigating factor? I don't know. It seemed like... <laughs> seemed like a good idea at the time. Okay. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we get no, into I'm the good, minutia? I'm good. Let's just move on. <laughs> okay. Rick, would you mind singing me and my murderous brother <laughs> to the minutia Not segment? Not Okay, my manslaughtery brother. That's closer. Okay. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Let's start with one that was more of a challenge in this issue than it often is, which for me was the timestamp. Okay, what was the timestamp for this issue? I couldn't find any contemporary to 1983. Okay. But I did find one from 1933. I know what you're talking about, and I think there is a way that that counts as a timestamp. So I'm hoping there was a remake of a King Kong movie. That had the same actress? Oh, that wouldn't work. (laughs) No, she would be very... Very old. Yeah, so I I had Beast Boy asking if Halo wants to be Faye Ray. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, King Kong, that's a movie a lot of people know. And and turns out that was from the 1930s, 1933, yeah. which, you know, not 1983. That's true. I think the way that that works as a timestamp is Halo's response to that. Because she says, who? So she the fact that she doesn't know who Fay Ray is, but there would be people that would still consider that a contemporary enough reference that they would be surprised that a young person wouldn't know who that was. You know? That's what I was going for. It, it's, a, it's a little bit, it takes a little bit of massaging because Beast Boy, I think, is supposed to be the same age or possibly younger than Halo. But we have established that he is a film buff who was largely raised by old cinema and television. So, yeah, I think that works as a timestamp. I had a different one. The weird-shaped, tiny coffee cups that everybody is drinking out of, that looks very 80s to me. They're drinking out of these little coffee cups that seem like stemless Manhattan glasses, almost. That seems very stupid. weird shape, but they're also very small. And that really does seem like early 80s, like, oh, this is what fancy people drink things out of. They go next to my octagonal plates. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a scene where Black Lightning is, uh, is sipping from one of those. It was pretty cool. Tough man, dainty cup. Yeah. Pretty cool. That was one of the fun scenes that was in the film Shaft, too, was Shaft drinking his espresso with a lemon peel Mm. uh, from a tiny, and he's a big, strong, tough guy. Uh And that was pretty cool. That reminds me, too. We had talked earlier about this in the different interactions, different characters from one team interacting with another. It struck me as a deliberate choice that there were virtually no interactions between Black Lightning and Cyborg, which Mm. seems weird. I found myself being both disappointed and a little bit relieved that it wasn't done. Mm. They are two of the only black superheroes that are operating at the time. It seems artificial that that wouldn't seem noteworthy to them or that they wouldn't compare notes when they're brought into contact with each other. Yeah, there's I, not, like, a version of the superhero, like, nod, like... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like I said, I was both... Dis- I was disappointed because I think that could have been an interesting story, but I was also relieved because it, I 
think it would have been done pretty badly. And I think that the intention was like, no, their race is irrelevant to the fact that they are good superheroes. So why would they talk to each other? It's a weird, like, early 80s version of liberal that I think would make that choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the colorblind thing. Yeah, and I think that's worth noting. Mm-hmm. Corey. Yes? What was your favorite sound effect? Oh, <laughs> there were so many funny... There were some great ones. sound effects in this, man. I have four of them, but they all kind of go together because they're all alliterative. I don't know which ones to choose. I know which one I'm choosing. I had a few others written down. One that I did enjoy is Chris, which is the noise that Simon's powers make. Like an electrical crackle. I guess, but uh, it just reminded me of Criswell from the uh, Ed Wood movies. And uh, I just like the noise Chris. Okay. I liked Metamorpho launching a dude into the air when he was turned himself into a bulldozer though is probably made out of magnesium or something Mm -hmm. he does way more in terms of shape-shifting than he does transmutation of his body in this issue but when he launches a dude skyward it makes the noise sproing he does and that was one of my favorites coupled with the follow-up noise of the dudes hitting the ground Mm -hmm. or the water i forget where they land but that makes the noise sploosh ah but my favorite was Dr. Light getting hit in the face with what looks like a pile of shit, making the noise, sploop! <laughs> I also had sploop as my favorite. Yeah, I think sploop is the best. The first one that hits him goes splat, and the second one goes sploop, and we've got a sp- splat sploop. The splat back back. is pretty funny, because he gets hit in the back of the head with it, but the follow-up, it was like Jim Apera was like, I'm worried that people won't get that that looks like poop. So I'm going to say sploop. Sploop. Yeah, there we go. I could watch Dr. Light get hit in the face with poop all day. Funny to see somebody you don't like get shit on. Indeed. Sartorially speaking, what instances of fashion did you find noteworthy in this issue? This was tough because uh, there's so many heroes yes in it and there's not a lot of uh, extras yeah not a ton of civilians so we had basically the office workers to choose from sure and the office worker i chose was the lady on page 17 who looks like a like a i'm thinking 1960s kind of secretary and but she's got a pretty cool outfit which is like a orange and black dress or blouse mm-hmm and some funky glasses. Yeah, with cat's eye glasses that mm. wouldn't really be popular again until like about five years ago. Right, yeah. And I don't know, that was cool. Yeah, I, I think that is a good look for her. I noted that one as well. And also there was a panel in which I wanted to talk about Katana's outfit. Because I'm not super familiar with Katana. And the front of her outfit has a yellow circle that has four like arms coming out of it i think those are maybe supposed to be sun rays i think it was supposed to be like that was a new mexico flag yeah it it does look a little new mexico flaggy but because i was unfamiliar with it and i had to look up what that actual symbol was because there's one on page 17 which is one of the first scenes where you see the full front of her outfit i was like is there an image of a samurai helmet on the front of her shirt and it brought back that whole Arby's thing where they give you a hat with a picture of a hat yeah, on it, but they don't give you the hat. Oh. And it's like, why wouldn't she just have a samurai hat if they want to give her a samurai hat? Why is she wearing a shirt with a picture of a samurai hat on it? I don't think that is the intention, but it does look like a like a horned samurai helmet 
in that. And I was very glad to see that that is not her logo. I did go to the Samurai Museum, and I'm pretty sure that the costume designers for Katana did not visit that same museum. <laughs> Where was that? That was in Tokyo, Japan. Oh, very nice. I, was I, actually... I saw the exhibit of Samurai Armor when it tore, did the tour uh, in Portland, and they had some beautiful stuff on display. I bet that was way more complete than, than this museum. This oh, museum really? was... So like a coin-operated museum? No, but it... It was like maybe four rooms about the size of like the downstairs of your house. Oh. And it was the private collection of some some rich guy. Oh. Did he just have pictures of himself wearing all of the armor? No, no. It was cool. They had a dude come out and do a, a demo. Ooh. And he comes up like super close to where you are when he's doing the, the sword thing. Mm-hmm. One of the, the little sword accidentally like fell. A waziri? Wakazashi. Ah, damn. I think. And, uh, yeah, it landed near my feet. That was very exciting. Oh, that is, sounds very exciting. Did he make coffee for you? You see, that's the whole thing with the Bushido Oh, code. then he wasn't like, a real samurai. No. That's the tell. Actors. <laughs> Ridiculous. Mikasa Esuka. <laughs> samurai Credo. Let's take this party to the Bow Zone. In this issue, what instance of one character referring to another character as a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to talk about? Unless I missed it, we're going to have to go with metaphor. Indeed we are. For the first time in a little while, there is no bozo overtly mentioned. After the last comic we read? (sighs) Big disappointment. Ouch. Yeah, quite a dearth of bozos. I'm going to go with Gizmo, who pretty much as always seems to have the best zingers. I really like the way they write this guy's dialogue. And also, because it was directed at Dr. Light, who I think is the biggest of bozos, to Dr. Light, Gizmo says something to the effect of, this is when they're kicking him out off off the team, before they decide to murder him, I right. think. That, um, so it's really in that half a panel between kicking him out and murdering him. In fact, maybe it is this zinger <laughs> that just turns the tide turns the... into, you know, from kicking out to murder. But he tells Dr. Light that they have burned out his bulb. I don't really know what that means, but ouch, indeed. I guess apparently it means it's we're going to murder you now. Looks to me like we just burned out your bone. <laughs> and that is perhaps the thing, because that does have Mammoth rejoin with, Can I? I'm sorry, I keep forgetting he's Australian. Can I smash him, Simon? That's the best Mammoth you've done. Thank you. Yeah, and then we get the splats and sploops. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had a few different potential bozos in this on... Page 22, we get a very hypocritical Simon with a P calling Metamorpho a freak. I mean, come on, Simon with a P. What the fuck, dude? Especially in this issue where it looks like his brain dome is enlarged slightly and more bulbous than it normally is, where it looks like he's wearing a novelty shower cap, kind of. Like, maybe he's just got his brain up in rollers under it or something. It's gross. It's really gross and weird looking, and certainly not the sort of thing that you should be calling anybody a freak if you're uh, going around looking like. Also, if your brain is in a glass thing, like, you should wear a hood or something. Yeah. Because everybody's going to smash your brain if you're a bad guy. Maybe it's, like, super strong plexiglass, and he's purposefully drawing attention to it. Wait. Is it, did we have the thing before about, like, with the butterflies having spots on them? That's yeah. That's a decoy? Yeah. Maybe. Would He's we got say a decoy brain, brain bowl. His real brain's in his butt or something? Yeah, probably. Okay. Probably his real brain's in his butt. <laughs> probably. I think that's how Simons are built. So on page 12, we get a diss of Dr. Light by, I believe, Metamorpho, who says, 
Hey, Thomas Edison here is still alive. Dr. Light responds, circuitry in my costume protected me. And Batman says, and that saves us some trouble. What? What does that mean? He's still alive. That saves us some trouble. Now we won't have to resurrect the dead. Was that their previous plan? Maybe Batman was like saying that to make him scared that they were going to kill him. Wouldn't it save them some trouble if he was already dead? Not if he was alive, <laughs> if that were the case. Oh, Jesus, that is confusing. Yeah. You're still alive. That saves me some trouble. Otherwise... I don't have to bring you to life now. To or, get the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know either. But I think calling somebody uh, Thomas Edison's a pretty good diss. That guy electrocuted a lot of elephants. Fuck that guy. I read a thing about him, though, that was that was interesting also, where at one point his entire factory burned down. And it was the equivalent of today of, like, millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It was this terrible, giant thing. His response to that, apparently, he came to the to the factory that was burning down. He was like, oh, call everybody. You know, bring the kids, bring the wife, everybody, bring your families. You're never going to see a fire like this again. It's that's like, pretty good. That's yeah. a good attitude towards disasters you can't do anything about. That is true. I, I, always, know I know that, that story about him, like... Uh, if he was thinking about hiring somebody to go out to eat with them, and if they put salt on their food without tasting it first, then he wouldn't hire them. I've never heard that story. Because it meant that they were prejudging things or whatever. Yeah, or maybe they like fucking salty food. People have weird personal habits that don't necessarily carry into their work life. Yeah, somebody told that to me when I was salting food without tasting it. And it's like, yeah, well, I wouldn't work for somebody who electrocuted elephants and ripped off Tesla. So I guess what's a good fit? Ah, fuck Thomas Edison. Yeah, I don't. I didn't know the elephants thing. That's not. Although he is great. apparently a good fire spectator. Corey, yes. What was your favorite panel? There was a lot of good art in this book. Jeff saves the day was one of one of mine. That's Geoforce. <laughs> for for those of you that don't understand my shorthand, on page four, where he uses his powers of science to lift the assembled island out of the water, saving everybody. Yep, he does a good job. It and, looks really cool, because yeah. all the titans are kind of huddled on the top, and all of the outsiders, and uh, there's water dripping off it like crazy. It's this big, impressive scene. And you really do get the idea of the scale of the of the island that he is lifting, and how stressful and how much work it is for him. And it is a well-done panel. I, I enjoyed that a lot, too. I really liked, on page 24, there's what I call the Predator Handshake, which I, is Batman and Robin... Doing their, like, it looks like they are squeezing as hard as they can. It, it is like the the manshake grasp from Carl Weathers and Schwarzenegger and Predator. But it is them deciding that they're both pretty great and respect each other. I had that one, too. I called it Happy Handshake Team. Because the whole team in the background is all grinning. And they're like, oh, they're shaking hands. That's yeah, wonderful. that is nice. I also... Really liked the nonsense Simon panel we talked about before where he's making a weird light water slide for his mud men to walk on. Mm-hmm. And there's one on page five that I call Sad Robin that I just really liked. He looks like he's about to cry because Batman says, we'll go there to clean up and plan our next move. And Robin's thinking, it's always the same. And he really does look like he's about to cry. And then in the next panel, he goes immediately to being very angry. Every time I step out on my own, he steps in. And it's back to being a boy wonder. Uh. Boy. 
I'm a man wonder. <laughs> he should insist that he is called the man wonder when he switches and uh, stops being Robin. I would love that. I, I'm going to start calling him that. I had a backup panel, which we've already discussed, but I think it deserves mention again. It's on page nine and it's Black Lightning drinking that little cup of coffee. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Corey, in this issue, as every issue of a Teen Titans comic, there is a Speedy, the worst of Teen Titans. And there is also an Aqualad, the best of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad? This doesn't happen that often, but my Aqualad in this issue was indeed Robin. Ah. I liked that he made the transition from being very sad Mm -hmm. to very pissed off Mm -hmm. to just saying, fuck this. I'm in charge. I know what my team's good at. I'm going to lead us to victory. He shows very good leadership in this Mm -hmm. issue. I appreciated that as well. I considered him, but I decided to give it to Tara because she did save everybody's life. She was kind of a dick to Metamorpho, but she made the giant island that her brother ended up propelling out of the water. It was a difficult thing for her to do, and she did it with her last gasp of energy before she went unconscious, and good job. That was good. I had actually my backup as Geoff. Oh. I mean, Bryon. Sure. Bryon. I mean, Geoforce. Yeah. For finishing the work that she did. That was a nice uh, team effort. I agree. Although, I mean, the Teen Titans doesn't have the same looseness of rules that the Defenders does in terms of who can and can't be eligible. Oh, no? No. Never have you bent these rules? I don't believe I have for the Teen Titans. I think you have to be a teen. Mm Mm-hmm. And you have to be a Titan. <laughs> I might be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure I did at least make sure that they were teenagers. And I don't Dear think Brian listeners, is a teenager. <laughs> those of you with a longer memory than I. <laughs> or I. <laughs> if Bob is wrong, please let us know. Yes, you can send that to at Corey Whitney on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I think I'm Pieapple something. Wait, you are on Twitter? I did a, uh, set up an account a long time ago, but I haven't checked it for years. What if you've won some prizes? Wait, there's prizes? I don't know. I don't think so. I think oh. it's just ads and stuff. Anyway, get in touch with Corey there and let him know that I am right. <laughs> or wrong. But yeah, you had uh, Brian as your backup? Uh, yeah, Brian was my backup and Robin was my, my main. Uh, conversely, who was the speedy, the worst of Teen Titans? Everybody did pretty good in this issue. I did not like that Beast Boy was up to his old stupid garbage. Uh huh. Garbage. Uh huh. Yeah. That's probably what that's named after uh, him because he's such a piece of trash. He is being gross. Yep. And I didn't care for it either, although I did like that he turned into a gorilla and climbed to the Empire State Building. Uh, that was not enough to offset himself being a, uh, a creepy harasser. Nope. And turning into a really bad rabbit. Gross. Yeah. Gross all, all around. around. Yep. Corey, I have a very important question I must ask you. Mm-hmm. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1983, and the month of our Lord, December, what was Aqualad probably up to Wapoot, Corey Wapoot? Indeed. So, some of you may recall that Aqualad was a little bit bummed out because uh-huh. he had lost a bet. And, and an idol in Slim Pickens. <laughs> Both, really? Yeah. That was a rough time rough month for the boy yep as a result of his losing the bet about who would win the men's australian open he was cleaning the dome mm-hmm. over atlantis long arduous task however there was a secondary bet 
to the women's match. Oh, at the Open, the very Australian Open tennis bet intensive month for for young Aqualad. It was, it was, and it being the eighties and a time where everybody was awful to men's stuff had a higher stakes than the women's mm-hmm. stuff. However, he was successful in predicting that uh, Martina Navratilova was was gonna was gonna beat uh, Kathy Jordan. Oh. And got the point spread right and everything. Whoa. The wager for this one was also a little bit more high stakes for Aquaman than it was for Aqualad. Because it turns out, did you know that Aquaman does not like basketball at all? What? He hates it. I had no idea. He is a soccer fan. He's like, basketball is too fast. There's too many points. It makes them not worth it. Is it in part because the netting of the basket around the the hoop reminds him of nets and he hates nets? Oh, geez, that could be. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to ask ask the man himself. All right. I really know. The result of him losing this wager, though, was that he would have to take Aqualad out to see a game. Oh, what game did they see? Well, turns out that there wasn't anything local to where Atlantis was. So oh. they had to travel all the way to either Denver or Detroit, <laughs> wherever the game was held, <laughs> to see the highest scoring game at that point. Oh, I bet um, that drove Aquaman nuts if he hated seeing those nets. It was the nets. worst. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Detroit uh, came in at 186 points. Denver at 184. Three of them from overtime. Wow. So it was quite a riveting event. Aqualad had a wonderful time. Brought plenty of water. <laughs> lots of good snacks. Beaky was hanging out. Nice. They were throwing popcorn at each other. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. And Aquaman was just sitting there with his arms crossed, being a big old stick in the mud. Ah. Well, it was a very eventful month for young Aqualad. He uh, he was up to all kinds of shenanigans. One of the things was that on the 15th of December, he attended a wedding. You see, Aqualad, being both a adventurer and an orphan, he worked as a consultant for a bunch of... Uh, Authors of young adult fiction. Because <laughs> he checked all the boxes there. And one of those, uh, during that time, as a consultant, he developed a good working relationship with Roald Dahl. Hmm. And so, as a courtesy, he was invited to Roald Dahl's wedding, where Roald Dahl wedded Lissy Crosland on December 15th. And at the wedding reception, it was kind of a big to-do. A lot of uh, the luminaries, uh, it was held in London. A lot of the luminaries of the art scene in London were there at the time, including one Pete Townsend. For real? Yeah. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) And Aqualad was having a fun time at the reception. He had uh, had a couple of of beverages. Oh, no, I think I see Um, where this is going. And at one point... People are just, like, coming up on stage. The, the official wedding band has has gone home at this point, but it's the wee hours of the evening, and party's going on. People are like, hey, man, let's let's play some music. Aqualad, do you know any instruments? And he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. And the, the assorted revelers are like, well, what instrument do you play? Do you want this guitar? It's like, eh, I can play the guitar, but uh, does anybody have a flying surfboard that I can play? Because I used to be pals with this group, The Flips. Maybe you've heard of them. They're pretty good. And they played a flying surfboard, and uh, they taught me a few songs. And of course, you know, it's a party. Somebody can't wait to whip out their flying surfboard to play some songs on. And Aqualad 
just shreds on that thing. And everybody is like, what the fuck? This is amazing. And uh, Pete Townsend takes one look at that and says, I want to take my career in a new direction. And so the very next day, a <laughs> proxy announced that the Who were breaking up. God damn it, Aqualad. Well, it didn't stick. Oh, yeah. They kept getting back together. I think I saw one of their farewell tours in like the mid 90s. So, mm -hmm. but in December of 1983, for the second goddamn issue of the Teen Titans in a row, that is what Aqualad was probably up to. Busy month. Indeed. I want to hear that song, though. That guy the plays a mean flying surfboard. Mm. Don't we all? Yeah, I mean, if there was somebody there that was playing the baton or the magical motorcycle in accompaniment, that's a good band. You gotta have the shofar. <laughs> that's a different band, but I bet he would be a good accompaniment. I want to see a... Like, just a shofar solo coming through yeah, that. Yeah, just pop up and... I miss Mal. Tequior. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you'd like to get in touch with us, if you have any questions, you can reach us at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Lisa's running our Instagram account, I believe. And there's pictures and words there, probably. Mm -hmm. If you haven't heard enough of my yammering, uh, I was a guest recently on a show called Comic Reflections, which was a lot of fun. Uh, it's hosted by Nicholas Prom, who has been kind enough to guest host on this show, and that should be coming out on Monday. We talked about the amazing comic book Brother Power the Geek, and uh, yeah, you guys should, could, should check out what Nicholas brings. He is a very knowledgeable man in the field of comic books, and you should, you should learn things that he knows, man. It's a good time. <laughs> so check out Comic Reflections. Yeah, and you can check us out on Apple Music or Stitcher or your podcatcher of choice. And, you know, leave us a review there if you like what you're hearing. And if you don't like what you're hearing, then you can reach Corey at I like apples and pie on Twitter. Right? I do like both of those things. Right. Yep. Send your feedback. Send your feed. Send your negative feedback there. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. The key or... <laughs> Juvenile. Yeah. Manslaughter. That's a different thing, right? Uh, sure. Can't call it manslaughter, then. I mean... Well, it's man uh, attempted manslaughter. Even if the person's a minor? Yeah, I mean, it's the same crime. You just get tried as a minor for it. I guess calling him boy slaughter <laughs> doesn't sound good. Yeah, boy slaughter doesn't sound like it would be less of a crime, Corey. It's probably... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know it's gonna go in the after the credits. <laughs> oh no. Um. Okay. <laughs>